0: are concluding our series, Expect the Unexpected, here this morning as we turn to Luke chapter 1 and we will see the song of the Savior. That's what this Christmas season is all about, is to expect those things that are unexpected. And we come now to meet a man that we met last week. His name is Zacharias. He was a priest, a man of the cloth, a man of God, a man who went to the temple and offered the sacrifices. And God showed up one day and spoke to this man named Zacharias and through the angel Gabriel, he came and said, you and your wife are going to have a baby. And they said, there is no way possible that this is going to happen. I'm too old. She's definitely too old. There's no way we're going to have a baby. And God said to the angel Gabriel, oh yes, you're going to have a baby. You'll name him John and be John the Baptist. And we know that from Zacharias, his unbelief cost him, during those nine months of pregnancy, he was stricken with silence. He, he was not able to speak. Now, that's what a preacher, his tool belt is to be able to speak. And so here is Zacharias, a man who was supposed to speak, who's supposed to preach, who's supposed to talk, not able to do this. And now for nine months, he's reflecting on that, that encounter he had with Gabriel. When the baby came... Zacharias broke out in a song. He began to sing, and for nine months it was welling up inside of him what he was going to say, the first words that were going to come out of his mouth, and we have them recorded right here in God's Word. Luke chapter 1, please stand with me as we read God's Word. Luke chapter 1, beginning in verse number 67, God's Word says this. And his father Zachariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, saying, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel for he has visited and redeemed his people and has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies and from the hand of those who hate us. It says that, it goes on that, uh, verse uh, 70, as he spoke by the mouth of his holy prophets from of old, that we should be saved from our enemies, the hand of the one who hates us, to show the mercy promised to our fathers, to remember his holy covenant, the oath that he swore to our father Abraham to grant us. Father, we thank you for this word. Now, God, as we look at this prophecy, as we look at this song from this man, Zacharias, as we look at what it was that was welling up inside of him, and as he began to share it forth, this song of salvation, the expect the unexpected. Father, open our hearts this day. Won't you speak to us this day from your word that happened so long ago? We ask this in Jesus' name, and all of God's people said, please be seated. Expect the unexpected, the song of the Savior, the song of salvation. Three things that I believe that we see from this song of Zacharias as he opened his mouth up for the first time in nine months and he began to sing and cry out and he began to prophesy the coming Messiah. Three things. First of all, he said about Jesus as Zacharias was singing. Three things he said about Jesus. Number one, he said that he came to bring us liberty. Jesus came to bring us Liberty. And as you're taking notes, as you're jotting that down, there are two things tied to this liberty that God brought in the person and the baby of Jesus Christ. Number one, that God visited us. Number two, that God has redeemed us. The two great blessings that come out of the liberty that Jesus brings is number one, God has visited us. And number two, God has redeemed us. Now, it's especially noteworthy at the onset of looking at this song that that Zechariah begins to sing, that Jesus himself is identified as the God of Israel. Jesus himself is God who has come. And God in Christ Jesus has visited us. No wonder his name is called Emmanuel, which means God is with us. The Creator has become a creature The one who had made mankind is now made a man. The sovereign God is wrapped in swaddling clothes and is laid with us, God with us, Emmanuel. God has visited us. And in Christ, in Jesus, we have the mind of God thinking. In Jesus, we have the heart of God throbbing for this world. In Jesus, we have the hands of God touching And in Jesus, we have the mouth of God testifying. The Apostle John wrote it this way. In the beginning was the Word. The Word was with God and the Word was God. We behold His glory, the glory of the only begotten of the Father, full of grace and full of truth. God was made man. God came, bone of our bone and flesh of our flesh. He he understands the struggles and the hurts of life. You say no one understands what I'm going through. Oh, yes, there is one. His name is Jesus. He walked in the flesh and bone and blood that, that we have, and, and he knows the struggles and the hurts and the pains that life brings its way. Jesus knows. God became man. God visited us. How awesome is that? Now, why did he do it? Why did God leave the luxuries of heaven why did God send his son, Jesus, who left the luxuries, the, 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 the glories of heaven, the holiness of heaven? Why did he become man to redeem us? That's what the song says. Bless me, the Lord God of Israel. For, as he said in verse 68, he visited us, look at it, and he redeemed us. You see that word there? Underline it. That word redeemed is a very important word. It means buying back of a slave. It means to set a captive free. And so Jesus came to redeem us, to set us free, to liberate us. That's why we say in this point, Jesus came to set us free. He came to bring us liberty. He brings us liberty because truly we were, if you know Christ, at one point in your life, you were a slave to Satan, sold under sin, and he purchased us back Through his blood, he bought us back at a slave auction of sin and bondage. How did he do it? How did Jesus buy us back? How did Jesus redeem us? Well, Zechariah's prophecy tells us a beautiful description. Look at verse 69. He says, he raised up a horn of salvation. You see that? A horn of salvation. What is a horn of salvation? In the ancient world, in biblical times, a horn was representative of power and authority. Oftentimes when you would go to war and you would see battles take place, the, the foot soldiers, the army, they would have helmets, and they would have a horn or, or two horns on their helmets, signifying power and strength and might. There was also, of course, the horns on the animals. Animals have horns and the horns again show power and strength. There's the horn of plenty that we find in the Old Testament, the horn of, of plenty, the horn of blessing. Lots of horns that we find in Scripture and throughout the world, but I believe that what Zacharias is referring to when he talks about the horn of salvation, there is a particular horn, actually four of them, that I believe that Zacharias was talking about. There were horns at the corner of each of the four corners of the altar there in the tabernacle, there in the temple in the Holy of Holies. There on Yom Kippur, the day of atonement, when the the blood sacrifice was poured out on the altar, there were four horns that were present on the corners of that altar. Psalm 118 tells us this, the Lord is God and he was made a light to shine upon us. Bind the festal sacrifices with cords up to the horns of the altar. The horns of the altar symbolize the great authority and power of God over sin. So here's what he's saying. He's talking about the coming Messiah. He's talking about how God has visited us. How this is the first time this has ever happened before. God, spirit God, spiritual God, stepped out of heaven, became man. He visited us. God visited us in order to redeem us so that the horn of salvation... The horn of salvation that God lifted up. That's exactly what Zechariah says. The horn of salvation is to be lifted up. The horn of salvation, I submit to you, was lifted up, not on the altar, but there on another piece of wood, on a cross. 33 some odd years later, after this prophecy was prophesied, the horn of salvation was ultimately lifted up with Christ nailed to it. And there on that cross, there on that cross, his son, God's son, would die. The cross, a weapon of salvation. Yes, a cruel, torturing device, but the cross was much more than that. It was the cross where we have the victory. It was the cross where the blood of Jesus was shed. It was at the cross, the horn of salvation, where the blood of Christ was poured out so that those of us who were sinners could come into a relationship and be delivered be redeemed from our sin. So we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, the horn of salvation that God had lifted up. Jesus came to set us free. And if the Son has set you free, you're free indeed. Not only did Jesus come to bring us liberty, but Jesus also came to bring us life. Look at verse 74. That we being delivered by the hand of our enemies might serve him without fear. And verse 75, and holiness and righteousness, underline that holiness and righteousness before Him all of our days. You see, Jesus came to give us life, but not just any life, abundant life. Verse 71 and 74 it speaks of enemies that were being raised up, enemies who hate us. And I would submit to you that there are really only three enemies that we face in life, three enemies that we face. There's sin, sorrow, and death. You may want to write that down. There are three enemies that you face in life. They're called sin, they're called sorrow, they're called death. One of the reasons why we as Americans and our government is struggling so hard in defeating ISIS is because we don't know how to define our enemy. If you cannot define your enemy, you cannot defeat your enemy. And if you cannot define your enemy, if you can't wrap your mind around your enemy, if you can't do that, then it's very hard to defeat your enemy. But if you know who your enemy is, if you come from the outset and you say, okay, I know that my enemy is this, it looks like this, and he does this, then you can have the victory over the enemy. So I say to you, Christian, that your enemy, your enemy is sin. Your enemy is sorrow. Your enemy is death. Now it takes on many forms. It takes on many fashions. It has many different names. It looks a whole lot different. Uh, sin, sorrow, and death may look different than, uh, sin, sorrow, and death for another Christian, but that in a nutshell is our enemy. All the problems of mankind come under one of those categories, sin, sorrow, and death. These are the enemies of our soul and enemies of, of society mankind was in misery, but God in Christ brought us mercy. We were in misery, but God brought us mercy. I love what he says in verse 72 says, for when he comes, he comes to perform the mercy promised to our fathers, the mercy to perform mercy. God did more than just pity us in our misery. When we were wallowing around in our sin and the muck and the filth of this world, God simply did not just have pity on us for misery. No, he showed mercy. Now understand, there's a difference between grace and mercy. Grace, grace is receiving what we don't deserve. Mercy is not receiving what we do deserve. And God has brought forth mercy. We don't receive what we do deserve. We deserve hell, but God provides mercy. And we don't receive what our sin should cause us to receive, the mercy of God. He came and he performed for 33 years an an errand of mercy and gave us forgiveness of sin. Then in verse 78, I love it. He said, through the tender mercy of our God. That's why God came as a baby. That's why he came as a small baby, as a a suffering servant. Now, if you or I were in charge, if you or I were God, and it was our responsibility to bring a savior of the world into this world, I would say that the majority of us would have done it completely different most of us would have done it in great pomp, in in great splendor, great circumstance, great military might. We would have brought the Savior probably in this day when you have all of this technology and TVs and internets and every eye then could see. But when God visited, when God came to give us life, he came to perform mercy and forgiveness And to give us life, and he did it not in pomp, not in circumstance, but he did it very humbly. In the form of a baby. Why? Verse 74 tells us why. That we might serve him without fear. That's the confidence of victory. Then he goes into verse 75, in holiness and righteousness. Yes, Jesus came. Jesus was born that we may be born again. Yes, he came and died that we may never die, that we may go to heaven. Jesus came to earth so we could go to heaven. But beyond us even going to heaven, heaven is a byproduct. We talk about this quite often here. If God simply saved us for the sole purpose for us to go to heaven, then as soon as he saved us, he would have taken us to heaven at that moment. But you see, salvation is so much more than getting to go to heaven. Yes, it's a pretty cool byproduct. Yes, it's a whole lot better than the alternative. But God saved you, not simply so you can go to heaven, but so that you may have life and have life more abundantly here. God saved us. Salvation encompasses every part of our existence. We affirm the fact that God is triune. God is Father, God is Son, God is Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God manifested in three persons. Now, we find an interesting verse in the book of Genesis that when he created man, the Bible says that God created man in his image. Have you ever wondered what that meant? I believe what it means is that when he created man, he created man a triune just as he is triune. God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit. Not three gods, but one God manifested in three persons. When he created you, he said that the the human is the greatest thing that was alive that he's ever created. Now there were three things that he created that live. The first living thing he created were plants, animals. They have a body, but uh, plants they can't think. Plants can't have communion with God. They have no spirit. That was the first living thing he created. They had a body. Then he created the second living thing he created were animals. Animals have a body. You can see them. You can touch them. Your dog Fido, Fido can think. He can reason. You can train Fido to go get your paper. Now again, I'm not going to go down the, the, the aisle of do all dogs go to heaven. That's another sermon for another day. But can your dog worship God the way you worship God? No. Your dog does not have a spirit. Your dog has a soul, has a mind, a psyche, but does not have a spirit. cannot commune with God. God created you and I, humans. He created us unique. We have a body you can see us. We have a soul we can think, a mind, a psyche. The, the Greek word for soul is psyche, where we get psychology, the, the study of the mind. So we are body, we are soul, but we're also spirit, the heart. Now, how many of us have heard that in salvation, salvation is also a trinity? There was the past form of salvation when you were saved. There, that's redemption. That's redemption. The present form of salvation, which is sanctification, we're currently being saved. And then there's a future form of salvation, that's glorification, when we will be saved. How many of you have heard that before? A lot of us have. Now, what does all of that mean? What does all of that mean? Well, there was a time when I was lost at the age of 17. I came to the realization that I needed Christ and and I was saved. I was saved. I was redeemed. I was purchased back. My, I, I was in bondage. I was in slavery, and God purchased me back. That was when I was saved. John chapter 3 says it this way. Jesus met a, another priest by the name of Nicodemus, and Nicodemus came to him and said, What must a man do to be saved? And Jesus said, Nicodemus, you must be born again. You were born of the water. You were born of your mother, but you must also be born of the Spirit. So you see, the the idea of salvation, when I was saved, what was saved? What was redeemed? Well, every part of me was redeemed. Every part of me was saved. But there was something particular that happened when I was saved, when you were saved. Perhaps you were saved when you were five or six years old. Perhaps you were saved later in life, 50, 60 years old. Maybe you've never been saved. But if you are saved, what happened to you was that your spirit was redeemed your spirit was redeemed. Your body hasn't completely been saved, has it? Has your body been completely saved? How many of us, as we get older, are, are excelling, can run faster and run harder and bend down on our knees, not hurt or our back hurts. How many of us, anybody, if you raise your hand, you're lying because we know that as we get older, these bodies fail, right? So our bodies, while while our body experienced salvation at that point, our body wasn't completely saved. Now, how many always think good thoughts and never sin? Anybody? If you raise your hand, you're a liar. And you just sinned in church of all places. So while our mind, our soul, our psyche was touched by redemption's power in the past, it wasn't completely made whole. What was made whole was our spirit. Our spirit, the Bible says, was dead, but is now alive. So when you pray to invite Christ into your life, your spirit was 100% regenerated and is now destined for heaven. Now, today, the Bible says we are being saved. We don't have time to go there, but 1 Corinthians chapter 15, the first three verses, if you're taking notes, it talks about sanctification. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 3. It says that we are being saved. This is the idea of sanctification. You see, I was saved, but I am currently being saved. What part, is, what, what part of me is being sanctified? Not my spirit. My spirit doesn't need to be sanctified. My spirit's already saved. My body, again, I go back to the fact that when I go to the gym, it hurts when I go to the gym. I, I'm not getting stronger or better, but as I get older, I'm getting weaker and more hurt. I'm getting sicker, not better. So what part is being sanctified? It's my mind. My mind, my psyche, my soul. You see, the the, the Bible talks about, that's how a person can be saved in their spirit, but yet not act as if they're saved. You can be saved. Your spirit can be saved. Your name be written in the Lamb's book of life. You be destined for glory, but yet still live like hell. Because while your spirit is redeemed, your mind is in the gutter. Your mind is on the things of this world. That's why it's so important through sanctification the process of being saved, to submit ourselves to the Lord, to submit our mind. What goes, students, listen to me, what you put in your eyes and in your ears comes out of your mouth and out of your heart. That's why we must guard ourselves from the things that we see on TV, the things we see on the Internet, the things that we put in our ears through the radio. We must be careful because the mind is still being redeemed. The mind is still being saved. You don't believe me? Listen to what Paul said in Romans 12 two. Be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your what? Your mind. Paul wrote in Philippians chapter four, finally, brothers, whatever is true, whatever is honorable, whatever is just, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is commendable, think on these things, he says. Joshua writes in Joshua one eight: let not the book of the law depart from your mouth, but meditate on it. Sink it in your psyche, in your, in your soul, in your mind. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything that's in it. For then you'll make your, your way prosperous and you'll have good success. You want to be prosperous? You want to be successful? Meditate on God's Word. Why is that? Because the things you put into the mind come out of the heart. And if you put in good things into the mind, you put good things through the eyes and through the ears, you begin to put good things in, good things begin to come out. What you meditate on, what you concentrate on, that's what your mind is focusing on. That's why this year we have been challenging the church to, to, to have a quiet time. My heartbeat is that every single member of Aloma Church would have a time, a daily quiet time alone with the Lord, where where we open God's word, and for just a few moments, we allow God to speak to us from his word. We're, we pray and we, we talk to God, but we also allow God to speak to us. And I thank God for Jenna Stevens, who's been writing this so faithfully week after week. And she's going to do it again for 2015. We're we're trying to make it so easy for the church. They're they're right outside. All you have to do is get them. They're on the Facebook page. They're on our church app. Just download our church app. And it's right there. The daily quiet time It's called SOAP, S-O-A-P. And every day we're, we're, we're leading you through God's word, having a quiet time. Why is that? Because it's so important to concentrate our mind on the things of God. Now we're doing something different. 2015, while we're going to still challenge the church to have a quiet time and every member of our church to have a quiet time, 2015 is going to be the year of Scripture memory. And as you leave today, out on the tables, out on the concourse, you're going to see a car that looks just like this. And on it, front and back, for those of us who are, 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 our eyes are going bad, you're going to have to get your glasses on to see it. But on here are 52 Scriptures, And every week this coming year, 2015, we as a church are going to memorize the same scripture together. Now, you say, there is no way that I can memorize scripture. Why would you say that? Because you see, Joshua 1a says, when you meditate on God's word, when you hide God's word in your heart, then you're going to make your way prosperous and successful. So the challenge is not just for the youngest of young. And, and we have Awana. We're, we're doing the ministry of Awana. We have over 100 kids in our Awana ministry. And, and the smallest kids, two, three years old, are learning Bible verses. And we're going to have them come in here on Sunday mornings uh, this coming year. And they're going to share their Bible verses with us as a church. And it's going to be a challenge because if a three-year-old, a four-year-old can memorize Scripture, then by golly, all of us can. And yes, yes, yes. John eleven thirty five 35 is on here. Jesus wept. So everybody's looking forward to week 17, okay? The shortest verse in all the Bible. We didn't put the second shortest verse in, the Bible, uh, in here, which is, remember Lot's wife. It's only three words. We didn't have that one. We gave you the easy one, though. But why are we doing this? We, we're challenging all of... We're challenging the whole church because when we think on God's word... When our mind is focused on the things of God, it it allows God to sanctify us. Does that make sense? When we put when we put bad things in, bad things come out. When we put good things in, when we put godly things in, when we put things that are redeemed, it allows God to sanctify us again, presently saving us our mind. Our soul was saved, Our, our psyche or our spirit was saved, our soul is being saved. And then the, the third part of salvation, the future form of salvation, I will be saved. That's glorification. 1 Peter chapter 1 talks about this. And, and that's not for our spirit or our soul, but this is our body. For you see, when we die, when our spirit and our soul leave our body, the Bible says there's one day when you're going to receive a glorified body, that you're going to receive a body that is not riddled with cancer. You're not gonna have a body that, that has ever come in contact with sin. God is going to give you a brand new, Body, and that is, friend, that is when we realize our full salvation when we step into heaven. And he gives us that new body. I was saved, my spirit, I am being saved, my soul. I will be saved in my body. And we look toward this one final point. Jesus came to bring us liberty, Jesus came to bring us life, and finally, Jesus came to bring us light. Look at verse 77. And let me mention verse 76. Zacharias is prophesying in, in all of this. He's, he's singing. Verse 76, he, he, he's been singing about the Messiah, the coming Messiah, the coming Christ. Then he stops in verse 76. He's talking about his son, John the Baptist. But then he gets back to Jesus in verse 77. He says, To give knowledge of salvation to his people and the forgiveness of their sins because of the tender mercy of our God, whereby the sunrise the sunrise, maybe your Bible says the day spring. We just sang about it in O Come, O Come, Emmanuel, that the day spring shall visit us from on high to give light to those who stir in darkness and the shadow of death to guide our feet into the way of peace. Day spring, what is a day spring? The day spring literally means the dawning of a new day. Second Peter chapter one, verse 19 says, that Jesus is the morning star who rises in our hearts. Revelation twenty two, sixteen prophesies that he is the root and the offspring of David, the bright and the morning star. My eyes have seen some beautiful things of God's creation. Obviously, the most beautiful thing my eyes have ever seen is my beautiful wife Sarah. The second thing are my beautiful children. One of the next things, the most beautiful thing my eyes have ever seen is waking up early in Israel while we're on the Sea of Galilee and walking out of the hotel at about 5, 5 5.15 in the morning. As I sit looking toward the east of the Sea of Galilee, over the Sea of Galilee, where almost 85% of Jesus' ministry happened right there. And I'm thinking in my mind, 2,000 years ago, Jesus was right here. Watching the same thing that I'm watching and watching that sun rise over the Sea of Galilee. There's not much in this life that's more beautiful and more meaningful than that. Now, you can watch a sunrise anywhere. Who's who's seen a sunrise before? Most of us have seen a sunrise. When the sun rises, does it just explode on the scene? Does it just say, hey, I'm here, and it's just all of a sudden in the sky? No. No. How does it come? It comes like the spring. It comes like the day spring. It comes. It peaks through the darkness. It smiles in the morning. It's gentle. It, 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 it turn, the sky begins to turn red and then on through the morning into the perfect day. That's the way God came in the person of Jesus. He didn't just explode on the, on the scene, but he came as the dawning of the day. He came as the uh, day star. He came as a gentle baby. God smiled on the earth. The light of the world began to shine. It was a simple place, a small place, a silent place. Christ was born and the sun was began to rise. Jesus would later say, I am the light of the world. He came to deliver us from darkness. And this is what Zacharias was prophesying. He is the light of the world. He who sat in darkness has seen a great light. Look at verse 79. To give light to those who sit in darkness in the shadow of death. And we'll close with this, shadow of death. Sitting in the shadow of death. What, what, what does that phrase, shadow of death, mean? If you've memorized Psalm 23, you, you recognize that phrase. It's the same phrase that David uses in the 23rd Psalm. Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death. The shadow of death. Do you remember some of those old, corny 1930s, 1940s horror films? We watch them today, and we're like, that would not scare anybody. That's so corny. But in the 30s and 40s, I guess they were, they were scary. I, I, I don't know. I, but some of you are poking, asking, hey, was that corny or was it scary? <laughs> don't, don't, don't do that. You're showing people's ages. Don't do that, all right? But these, these movies, these old monster movies, you've seen them before, black and white. They're so corny. It, it starts with a shadow on the ground. You know what I'm talking about? The the monsters come in and you don't see the monster first or you don't see the murderer first. You you see the shadow and you hear the organ play. And then it gets louder and faster and, and more scary or more corny. I don't know which. And then the substance of the shadow appeared. You know, the substance is always greater than the shadow. There's a whole sermon in that statement. The substance is always greater than the shadow. What is the substance of the shadow of death? You know what I'm talking about? Every substance, in order to have a shadow, I've got a shadow here on stage. In order to have a shadow, there has to be a substance creating that shadow. This tree is causing a shadow. These chairs are causing a shadow. Every shadow requires a substance. So when it's referring to the shadow of death, what is it that is causing the shadow to overshadow? What, what is the substance behind the shadow of death? Because you see, billions of people are actually under the shadow of death in our world today. We see them all over the place. All you have to do is look down the street that you live on. Look at the stores that you shop in. Look at the kids that that go to school with you. Billions of people sitting and working and living under this shadow, the shadow of death. The shadow can't hurt them. Oftentimes, they don't even realize they're in a shadow. Shadows can't hurt anyone. I can put my hand under this shadow right here, and it doesn't hurt. In fact, my hand had no idea that it was in a shadow. Shadows don't hurt anyone. But whenever you see a shadow, you know that there is a substance that's causing that shadow. In our verses before us, the Bible says that the lost world is sitting under a great shadow. A shadow of death. And if light is not shown to that person, if that person does not step into light, they will one day experience what is causing that shadow, which is eternal death, eternal damnation separated from God for all of eternity. It's pretty heavy stuff, isn't it? But the reality is that our bodies, our bodies were made to die. Our bodies are failing us, but our soul and our spirit were created eternal. Our soul and our spirit will never die. I know there's New Age theology that says, man, you live it up for today because tomorrow you may die and it's all over. So live, live for the day. Live for the day because this is all you got. That's the biggest bunch of nonsense I've ever heard in my life. The Bible says that that the day of of death, that's only the beginning. And I'm looking in the eyes of people who struggle at Christmas because loved ones have passed on. We we, we call them dead. If they know Christ, they're not dead. They're more alive today than than they have ever been in their life. Ed, your dad is more alive today than he has ever been in his life. Why? Why? Because they knew Christ. They knew Christ. Now, if you die separated from Christ, you live in eternity in a place that the Bible calls hell. Hell is a very real place. Hell is the absence of God. Hell is the absence of grace. Hell is the absence of mercy. Hell is the absence of laughter. Hell is the absence of the Lord himself. At some point in your life, if you're a Christian... If you know Christ, at some point in your life, you were walking and you were living under the shadow. Perhaps you never even understood you lived under a shadow of death. Maybe you're here today and you don't know Christ. You don't have a relationship with God. And for your whole life, you had no idea that you were living under this shadow, the shadow of death. But if you came to know Christ, that means that someone told you that Jesus is the light of the world. And when he shines around you, he makes the darkness flee. And when you step into the light, you become enlightened. He comes and he lives inside of you and you, you receive power, you receive life and life abundantly. And you can then face the hardships of life with, with peace, with joy, with happiness, with gladness. And it makes life a little bit more bearable to live life in Christ. When you place your faith and trust in Jesus, the shadow is removed. Life is no longer dark. Life is no longer depressing. Life now has direction. Why? Because you have full light. You you can see now for the first time in your life. And friend, that's why Jesus came. Jesus came to bring light to the world. The world was in a dark shadow. No wonder. No wonder Zacharias praised God for such a wonderful salvation.